um, between now and Christmas, instead of going to any of the minor prophets, I'll go to Christmas. So, <laughs> so uh, we can uh, celebrate the season, and then after the first of the year, we can uh, turn back to Isaiah. But Isaiah chapter 6 is a crucial passage. It is crucial, certainly, in um, the book of Isaiah. If I've read it properly, it's not his call to ministry. It is his reorientation. <clears throat> that is, instead of now preaching repentance to Israel, he preaches condemnation. <laughs> Remarkably enough, he brings a message that will bring condemnation, but it's a message of salvation. That, that's one of the most strange things that I've, I've run into in, in thinking about the scriptures in many, many years. Um, so... After we get through this passage, in a few weeks, in a month or a month and a half, we'll come back to Isaiah 7, and we'll come to, what is the message that brings hardening to Israel? Look at chapter 7, just a minute. Um, um, verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. That is... There, are, there is a coalition of nations that are coming against Judah. They want to dethrone King Ahaz and put their own candidate on the throne of Israel, uh, throne of Judah. And God says, it's not going to happen. Uh, but the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is crushed. You have Ratzin. His name was not Ratzin. It was Ratsunu. Okay. Ratsunu means one who has the pleasure of the gods. But Ritzin means crushed. <laughs> the, the head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is crushed. Uh, now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered uh, so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of, the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you do not believe, you will surely not last. And uh, there's a pun in Hebrew, if you do not stand. The NIV, I think, reads here, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. Something like that. Um, so it's a pun, and we can't reproduce it easily. NIV did a pretty good job with it. Um, but look back above just a little bit. The king of, the king of um, Damascus... Uh, has has another name. Where is that? Um, they keep moving things in the Bible. I, I don't know why they don't just leave it alone. <laughs> um, do you see the name Tabael in there or Tabiel? Yeah. Six. six, thank you. Uh, let's go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabael. Tabael in Hebrew is Tabal, which means good for nothing. <laughs> so, so what's the promise? What is this message to King Ahaz? If you will trust the Lord, the Lord's going to take care of this terrible problem you're facing. And his response, verse 10, comes shortly. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Sounds real pious, but it's good, good politics. 
the idea here is he will satisfy the worshipers of, of the Lord because I'm not going to test the Lord. Right? Not supposed to put God to the test. Amen? Except Martin Luther said, when God commands to test, it is sin not to test. <laughs> so, but he also is, is uh, hostile to the, to the intent of these foreign nations that are trying to attack. And so he's also serving his commitments to the Assyrian Empire. So verse then, verse um, um, 12 goes on, uh, verse 13 goes on. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Uh, so the message of deliverance is the message that brings unbelief and rebellion in the house of Judah. Are you with me here? And, Ju- and, and Ahaz is kind of a um, model of what the whole people of Judah are going to do. This is their response. They're going to be a people of rebellion against the Lord. So chapter 6 is setting this up. So not only is chapter 6, though, important to the message of the book of Isaiah, chapter 6 is important to us because it's quoted so often in the New Testament. It's quoted in Matthew 13. It's quoted, I think it's in Mark 4. It's, it's quoted in John 12. It's quoted in Acts 28. <laughs> and explains an awful lot. What's happening with Israel? What is, what's going on? And this passage, as we will see shortly, is uh, quoted over and over again in the New Testament for significant reasons. So let's go back. Let's pick it up at verse um, 5. We saw the glorious vision of God that Isaiah had in chapter uh, 6, verses 1 to 4 last week. Pick it up now at verse 5 and uh, to Isaiah's uh, response to... uh, Oh, that's uh, last week. Isaiah's response, his confession and his cleansing. Verse 5, then I said, woe is me. That's, that's good Bible language. What in the world does it mean? Basically, in this context, it means I'm a dead man. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I don't think, at least the commentaries I've read, know what a man of unclean lips is. <laughs> I don't know what that, they, they don't seem to know exactly what that is. I don't either. <laughs> um, I looked at this material last night just to review this, try to see if I could come up with some answers. And there are some things that, might be valid here. Um, If you were a prophet and you knew the sinfulness of your people and you were given a message of of judgment for them in chapters like chapters 1 to 5, what would be your attitude toward them? These sinful people. Why don't they straighten up? Are you with me? (sighs) What Isaiah doesn't understand is that the condemnation of any sinner is the condemnation of all sinners. And the condemnation of Judah is a condemnation of Isaiah himself. Are you with me? So he's speaking inconsistently. He's speaking the truth, 
but he's being inconsistent. And this is the closest I can come. This is just a guess. There are some things, my, my favorite professor said, there are three, th- three kinds of things preachers say uh, to which you ought to give different levels of credence. <laughs> First is when they say, the Bible says, and they quote it, then you give it highest level of cre- uh, credibility. Yes? Mm-hmm. When they say the Bible means, then you give it less. Mm-hmm. What, the, what the man is saying, you give less credibility. When the, uh, the preacher says the Bible implies, you give it even less. <laughs> so I'm not even sure here that I can say this is what the Bible implies, but this is the best I can do in coming up. He's speaking inconsistently. <laughs> the old saying, do you remember this, those of you who are older? In pointing at you, I'm pointing three fingers back at me. You remember this? So if I'm pointing at Judah, <laughs> then I got three fingers sending the message right back at me here. I stand under judgment too, except by the grace of God. So chapter five, uh, chapter 6, verse 5, his response, and as a, as a message, as a, uh, an act of God's grace, verse 6 follows, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, <laughs> the, the, the angelic being takes the coal with tongs and touches his lips. That sounds great. <laughs> uh, but this is a vision, so we can handle it. Uh, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. So now Ezekiel, Isaiah, where did Ezekiel come from? Isaiah is a qualified fit servant to proclaim the message. <clears throat> Just been thinking about the burnt offering as it relates to the Lord's Supper. The burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1 accomplishes atonement, Leviticus 1.4 says. Uh, people have said it's not an atoning sacrifice, but Moses didn't get the, get the message because in verse 4 he shall place his hands on the, on the head of the animal and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Moses didn't get the message. He needs to get straightened out with the modern commentators and not follow the Lord as much as he does. But uh, as an atonement, there are at least three things that are involved in it. One is expiation, one is propitiation, and the third is redemption. Uh, expiation means he, in, in atonement, he removes the uh, impurities of our lives which are the cause of God's wrath. And by removing those impurities through the sacrifice, he also propitiates God. That is, he, re- he takes away the wrath of God and renders him favorable toward us. But third, and this is an oddity that I've only come to understand in the last couple of weeks, as an additional element, um, uh, he has now redeemed us from what? The word redeem, you know, that's good Christianese. It, it makes a lot of sense to us, except if you ask, actually ask, what does it mean? Well, you will say you, that he bought us, yes? Another word that will be very helpful here is the word ransom. So Mark ten forty five, uh, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He has ransomed us. Ransomed us from what? 
Slave market of sin. Amen. <laughs> uh, uh, Peter, Peter uh, there's an ancient view of the atonement called the ransom to Satan theory. Uh, Jan and I were in, uh, uh, on the East Coast several years ago now, and we were uh, taken to a passion play. Uh, and at the passion play, they, it, was, it was pretty well done, all things considered. Um, but at, the, at, at, at a kind of crucial moment in the passion play, Jesus goes down to hell and he has to fight with Satan in this terrible battle. There's nothing of the ransom to Satan in Scripture. Satan has no claim over us. He has made a false claim over us. So Jesus is not dying to ransom us from Satan. Uh, there's a wonderful book called The Atonement of Christ that goes through the history of the, of the views of the atonement, <clears throat> 30-some different views. And the guy says, every one of these views has evidence for it right here in the Bible except one. And that's the ransom to Satan. <laughs> so every one of them has some support in Scripture. And, and he said, and this, this guy's name I think was H.D. MacDonald, said um, um, to, view, to limit our view of the atonement to only one is to miss all the rest. We should not give up the one, but neither should we ignore the rest. Right, does this make sense to you? So what is this ransom? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 8, 1, 18 and 19, he is ransomed from the empty way of life that we inherited from our ancestors, which is that empty way of life that has incurred the wrath of God. He has ransomed us from that. Therefore, he has also ransomed us not only from the cause of God's wrath, but ransomed us from God's own wrath. Um, so uh, he... he uh, has delivered us by becoming sin for us. Yes? Fred? Jim, just to back up one, one more step. Several months ago, you uh, talked about propitiation. Yeah. And you gave us a good synonym now for uh, using the word ransom. Yeah. Is the word satisfied or satisfied, is that a good word? Not entirely. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, the Greek and Hebrew terms don't have a single English phrase or term that would be satisfactory. Uh, NIV, yeah, NIV in Romans uh, 3.25 uses sacrifice of atonement. And as long as you explain what atonement is, that's okay. Then it works. But most people don't know what a sacrifice of atonement is either. Uh, so it takes some, some thought and explanation. Okay. Can we back up a little bit? In verse 5, it says, Jesus Christ died for all sin. Yes. Yeah. Is that a spiritual statement? Or a statement? Yes, both. Both. He has come. Uh, he is. You, you remember in the in Exodus 30, 33, 34, you have the golden calf event. Um, um, God said, "I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and I will pass by and proclaim my name." When I pass by, I'll remove my hand and you can see my back. Because no man can see my face and live. God ain't got no back. So, so what are we talking about? Uh, I, in terms of seeing the back of God, that would be, for any person that you know, probably the least interesting part of the person. Face is what I want to see. Yes? When, when Jan and I are, are away, first thing I want to see is her face. I don't want to see her back. <laughs> uh, so what's the point what he follows that up with is 
he proclaimed the name of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, um, uh, gracious and compassionate, uh, slow to, to, to wrath and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who forgives um, uh, thousands uh, sin and transgression, but he will not hold the, the wicked guiltless visiting the iniquity of the father on the son to the third and fourth generation. That's probably going to raise some more questions, which I will not address today. So <laughs> if you have a question about that, we'll take that up at some future date, hopefully after the next millennium begins. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the point is that the things that are most interesting to us about God are the things that God thinks are least interesting. There's so much more about him that is more, much more exciting that if I saw his face. Uh, in part, yeah. But it's also what God has given to him is the vision. It's how, why would you take up this kind of message against Israel? Go to Jeremiah, and, and sometime as you're reading through Jeremiah, the people put Jeremiah in prison. He, he's, he spends a lot of time in prison. One of the reasons is he's declared the coming destruction of the temple. And they say, you're speaking blasphemy against this house. Remember Jesus? Mm -hmm. right? uh, the, the charge brought against him at the, uh, at the uh, high priest's house was, he's speaking words against this holy place. Are you with me here? So Jeremiah and Jesus. And now Isaiah, how, by, what does he, by what right does he speak? By the right of commissioning from God. So... Um, with the coal now, then, in verse 6 and 7, with the coal, God has taken away, that is, he has expiated, removed the impurities and the, and, and the problem that impurity causes, yes, in Isaiah's life. He has propitiated himself, God has. He has removed his wrath and uh, instituted his uh, abounding favor in Isaiah's life. And third, he has ransomed him from uh, not only the, the empty way of life that he inherited from his ancestors, but also from the judgment that must fall on that, the judgment that will fall on the people of Judah. You, you see the point then? Yes? So now uh, Isaiah is, is ready to be a, a uh, messenger with an utterly unwelcome message. So verse... Eight. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, so let's move on to verse 8 in our, um, in our notes. Verses 8 to 13. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And how many missions conferences have you been in? <laughs> the Lord today with, with, with us is as he was in the days of Isaiah, calling upon us, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who of you will stand with Isaiah and say, Here am I, send me. Only, only <laughs> Did I do that well? well shall we give an invitation? Uh, Joyce, would you go? <laughs> Just as I am, would you? <laughs> uh, uh, I actually thought I saw Charlton Heston. Boy! Well, that's a reminder of the kind of preacher you Unfortunately, this is not a mission, a message about missions. This is, this is about judgment. 
uh, verse 9, he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render, what, what sort of verb is the word? What, tell me something about the grammar of the, of the verb render. Make it happen. What are you? What are you saying? What kind is this? An indicative? What is this? It's an imperative. This is what Isaiah is being sent to do. What is he being sent to do? Preach repentance. Call him to Jesus. Amen. No, he's sent to preach salvation, which will certify their condemnation. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Uh, one of the, in one of the translations that comes in the New Testament of this phrase, the word is, make the heart of this people calloused. Uh, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Um, otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and do you have and turn or return? Converted. Converted, yeah. The, the word that's most often translate repent in the Hebrew uh, language is to turn around or, or to return. This is that word here. Let's, so, otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and repent and be healed. What is God, what is God doing here? Pardon? It's a hardening. Yeah, what does that mean? It's a hardening. It's a judgment. It's a judgment. Is this the same as with Pharaoh? Yeah. As far as I understand it, at least. I mean, how can you understand the works of God? But as far as I can understand it, folks, when you harden somebody, you're not taking nice people and making them bad. Uh, to take, since you brought up Pharaoh, let me use that as an illustration. Who does Pharaoh think he is? He thinks he's God. He controls the flooding of the Nile every year. I don't know how much of this they actually believed. <laughs> he controls the receding of the flood of the Nile. He controls the rising of the sun every night, every morning. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. I, you know, I, I, I just think, could, could they really believe this stuff? But folks, for... Uh, as far back as, as Egyptian literature goes, and it goes back to around 3000 BC, this is what they taught about the Pharaoh. At, at some point, surely, they, they figured out, well, we're not doing anything. <laughs> but, but this was their theology. Are you with me? So if, if Pharaoh has a slave people, and the slave people have a god, what is the relationship to, of Pharaoh to the slave god? He's above him. He rules over the slave's God. So he responds to Moses, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? <laughs> well, you don't know the Lord. That's the problem. <laughs> but you see, by handing Pharaoh over to more sin, he is not making a good man better or worse. He's taking a bad man, and the way I've said it for years is, he's taking a bad man and taking away the restraints of his badness. Giving him, yeah, this Romans 1, 18 to 32, uh, or 39, uh, 32. Um, that's, 
He's just giving him the opportunity to express the rebellion that's already in his heart. Well, what's with Israel here? Well, we're coming out of the days, so chapter 6, verse 1, we're coming out of the days in which King Isaiah had been king. Um, that was a pretty, pretty golden era for, for Judah. Um, they reached heights they hadn't known since the days of David and Solomon. Well, we're not there yet because uh, he, he was followed by Jotham, who was also a fairly good king. Uh, in fact, uh, Jotham and, a- and Uzziah reigned together for a period because of Uzziah's uh, leprosy. <clears throat> but it, this was a good era. But you know, when things are going well, we tend to think pretty well of ourselves. Yes? I think I've got this, I think I've got this pretty well in hand. We're, we're doing this spiritual thing pretty well. <laughs> uh, and... And the people turn in, in Ahaz's day radically against the Lord. Ahaz goes back to the um, uh, goes back to idolatry that Ahab, that that they had learned from Ahab, King Ahab of, of Israel, through uh, the son of a of a I'm sorry through the Ahab's grandson who reigned over Judah. Are you with me here? Because, well, yeah, okay. (laughs) King Ahab, a wicked king, practiced Canaanite idolatry. His his contemporary was Jehoshaphat in Judah. And Jehoshaphat married his son, Jehoshaphat's son, off to Ahab's daughter. And then, so their son was the next heir. So Jehoshaphat's son came, and I can't remember their names. There are Jorams and Jehorams all over the place, and I can't keep them straight. Uh, but um, uh, this has all come back. And so Ahaz is back to that. He's having an alliance with the king of Assyria. Uh, at some point in this, in this very event that we're reading about in Isaiah 6, Ahaz is going to go up to Riblah, a city north of uh, Damascus, and he's going to meet the king of Assyria. And, and while he's there, he's going to see the Assyrian altar. We mentioned this in the last week or two. He's going to see an Assyrian altar that, um, uh, which king was that? Um, Shalmaneser III, maybe. You don't care. Why should I? Uh, uh, that he had erected, and Ahab sends the plans back to Jerusalem and says, look, move the altar of the Lord out, of the, out from in front of the temple. Let's put this one in, and we'll make our sacrifices there. When I need to inquire of the Lord, I'll go to the other altar. This, this is going to happen in less than one generation. Uh, Jotham's reign was not all that long, and so it's going to happen in one generation. That doesn't happen that quickly. Howard Hendricks used to say, when you see someone who has made a shipwreck of his life, it is not a blowout. It's the result of a long, slow leak. Fred? Okay. So, so the issue here is God knows the hearts of these people. And since he knows their hearts, he's finished calling them to repentance. And the sad thing is that Isaiah has a ministry that's going to look like an utter failure. Look at verse um, 11. I said, Lord, how long? <coughs> that's the question I want. 
how long? And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord, until the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. The next verse looks like there's a little hope, but there isn't until the very end. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will be, again, subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And I have a period after that, and I think that's right. Let's talk about it a minute. How long is going to be, Isaiah, the rest of your life? See, this is 732 B.C., uh, approximately 739. This is 739 B.C. It's going to be uh, until 586 that this is all going to take place. So I have 150 years. It's going to be the, the rest of your life and the life of your son and the life of your grandson and the life of your great-grandson and the life of your great-great-grandson and the life of your great-great-great-grandson until this is awful. He doesn't tell Isaiah that. We know it, but Isaiah doesn't. Fred? In summary, then, he's not saying, Isaiah, go and tell the people, repent so that this doesn't happen. He said, you just go tell them this is going to happen. Not even that. He says, go preach deliverance to them, as we'll see in chapter 7 and 8 and 9. Okay? The immediate preaching that Isaiah does in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 is preaching of coming deliverance. But the people will not respond. Uh, later in, the, in, in Isaiah's messages, he's going to say, when you, show, when you uh, uh, judge the earth, men learn righteousness. When you show them mercy, they never learn. So he's going to show them mercy. He's going to delay the judgment. As we, you and I know, Isaiah doesn't, but you and I know he's going to delay mercy I'm sorry, a judgment for 150 years. Does that make sense? Yes, no? Yeah. Right? Um, but why? Hmm? But why? Give him a to God is more merciful than we have ever dreamed he is. Um, and, in, and in ways we wonder, what in the world are you doing? Why do you do this? In part, um, I, I love something that my former professor Bruce Waltke said uh, some years ago, I have a series of lectures that he, he, he did, and they're on recording. I listened to them. I've listened to them over 20 times. We'll listen to them again at some point. But um, he made a comment about abortion that we are, we are not allowing more people to come to the banquet of life, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we give them no seat at the banquet of life. But God gives the lost seats at the banquet of life. The bad news is the longer God delays judgment, the worse it is. Richard? There's a message today that even my own children don't want to hear. Yeah. Okay? It's just like this. You know, the stock market's going crazy, jobs, everybody's got back to jobs for everybody now. There's more... There's more jobs than there are people going yeah. to work and so forth. And everything's looking great. 
Now you come along and say, well, the Bible says. Yeah. Okay, the Bible yeah. says this is not going to last. Uh-huh. Okay, it is going to get worse. Yeah. And, and so forth and so on. They don't want to hear it. Yeah. Same thing's happening today that, that the people don't want to hear it. Now maybe that's why we're not hearing so much about the end times preached from the Bible. Mm-hmm. The, um, the reality is. Folks, what I'm about to say, I need to make a disclaimer about. I have no background in economics. And if you looked at my bank book, you would know. (laughs) You could tell immediately. I have no background in economics. But I have a friend who uh, did his degree in economics. He's in Australia. And he told me when we were down there some years ago, we were driving along. He was showing us the countryside. And he said, Jim, you don't realize how how fragile the American economy is. Um, I experienced a little of this in the in the army. I worked in a uh, motor pool. We had eighty vehicles, uh, and we were supposed. Our company was a. They called it a straff unit. I'm not sure what straff means, but we were supposed to be able to pack up, load up on airplanes, travel deploy and be, be active within 24 hours any place in the world. Um, <laughs> at one point during that two, little over two years I was there, um, <laughs> we got orders to report to the, to the I started to say campus, uh, <laughs> report to the post with all of our uh, uh, military issue. And we spent the day sitting on our steel pots wondering what in the world was going on there was some kind of a dust-up between Israel and the, and the Arabs that um, we were on alert. It was, I forget what it was, level three, DEFCON three, which is pretty serious, four and five. Five is all out war. So we're normally at DEFCON one. We were at DEFCON three. And I couldn't even call my wife and say, next time you hear from me, I might be in who knows where. Do you follow? Because it was all top secret. Um, um, the problem that I observed in the, in the motor pool, I, I worked in the tool room, so I didn't have to worry about this kind of thing, but we couldn't get spare parts. At any given point, more than half of our vehicles were undrivable. We couldn't have gotten to the airport, much less <laughs> deploy and being active. Are you with me? Uh, and I thought then, you know, a 39-cent part is going to bring the United States Army down. And we don't realize how fragile life really is and the economy is. Uh, he said, your economy could break at any moment. And, the, and, and we saw this in 2008 and subsequent years. Yes, uh, it was tough. And it, it cannot be. If, if you just simply follow normal, normal market behavior, it's going to happen again. When? Don't know. That's the problem. So uh, uh, what we have to do is prepare people for such times. And I'm talking now about spiritually. What am I going to trust in? What, you, what is Christy, our, our daughter, our, our niece, what's she going to trust in? What she thought she could trust in was that Christian husband she married, but turned out that he is pretty rough. What she thought she could trust in was commitment to the work of the Lord and, and so forth. 
but the Lord's systematically taking that all apart. He's not going to leave her dis- disconnected. He's going, to, he's going to use her, and it's going to be a marvel when, when he brings it all through. And our hope is that the Lord will work in her husband's life and restore him. Are you with me here? The, the, uh, but I've got to prepare them for such things. I've got to go on and say it so that when it comes to pass, this is what Isaiah is going to say later on. I told you this in, in Isaiah in the 40s. He's going to say, I told you about this Babylonian captivity long ago so that you could not say, my gods have done this. Uh, so you go ahead and tell them. And then when it really happens, you've got some credibility. So here is, here is God sending Isaiah on an impossible, hmm, not impossible, but a, an entirely unwelcome ministry. Who wants a ministry of certifying the judgment of a people he loves? Who wants a ministry of, de- uh, of declaring hope to people who find no hope in real hope? They put all their hope in, in soap bubbles. What good is it? And yet God delays the judgment 150 years. I, it, I didn't get the numbers right, but you can live with it, perhaps. Uh, uh, um, um, he, he delays the judgment for 150 years? To what end? I don't know, but I do know this. I'm learning more and more. God is way more merciful than I ever dreamed he would be. And sometimes he's more merciful than I even want him to be. If, if I were um, Michal's family, I would hate David and want God's judgment on him. Wouldn't you? Yet David is the good guy. Yes? Am I, am I making sense to you? Do you want Jacob as your next door neighbor? Your son-in-law? No. No! <laughs> I don't want Jacob. So how come he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? Because faith is valuable wherever you find it. Are you with me? So God is far more merciful than I want him to be sometimes. But he delays judgment until he gets to the point where his delay would look like an injustice. And then he stops delay and carries it out. This is what he does then in the, uh, the subsequent history of Israel down from 739 B.C. to 586 when the temple is destroyed and the people are carried off in captivity. Richard? So when he's talking about the 10% here, he's talking about the remnant? No. Look at it again. Look there at verse 13. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. So they're gonna, even the people left are going to be judged. But I haven't finished. Yeah, yeah. But I haven't finished the verse yet. Yeah, the last sentence is crucial. The holy seed is its stump. When you get down to the stump, and that's all that's left, that's the remnant. Then, yeah, uh, you've seen this. We had some holly bushes planted at the entryway to our house when we moved into it. And I don't know what's wrong with the soil, but holly bushes just don't... And, and what was the other... Um, 
there was one of those bushes that has green leaves with yellow edging around them. Uh, the the Euonymus. Uh, we had Euonymus and Holly. And the Euonymus died on both sides. We replaced it with Holly. The, the one on the one side, as you face the house, the left side, has been doing okay. The one that was on the right side died back so badly that, that I, I didn't even have to pull it out. It simply broke off at the, at the roots. And I pulled it out and threw it away. It sounds prophetic. Oh, <laughs> 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 Well, you see, I have a brown thumb. So, so the left works for you, the right does. That's right. Uh, we, we planted jasmine, and it died. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but some of it survived, and it has now filled that whole, fi- whole bed all the way to the end, to the uh, right side of the house. But now that the jasmine is there, the holly's coming back. <laughs> and I got to dig through that to get rid of the holly now. <laughs> my, my point is, um, pardon? The life was always there. Uh, and we haven't planted any more holly since it died, and it's been several years. Uh, my point is that uh, God is not going to leave himself with no remnant. Uh, it's going to be like an oak or a terebinth. Um, if you cut it down, there's still life in the root, and over time and in the right circumstances, it will start to sprout and will grow back. Uh, so the remnant is coming, and he's preparing us then for this concept of the remnant that he will focus on heavily in Isaiah 40 and following. But the holy seed is the remnant. The holy seed is the remnant. Yeah. Uh, so in chapter seven. He's going to show us, number one, why this is necessary. What's, what's going on with Israel that makes this kind of message necessary? From the head down, is, uh, Judah is rotten. Ahaz will be succeeded, thank God, by Hezekiah. But Hezekiah is succeeded by his son Manasseh and Ammon. And they are so bad. Manasseh and Ammon are so bad that God says, okay, I've got to destroy Jerusalem. And it's going to be because of the sin of Manasseh. What's amazing is the book of Chronicles tells us that Manasseh repented and returned to the Lord. God took him off in Babylonian captivity and then sent him back to the land. So as Ahaz is a model of the sinfulness of Judah, Manasseh is going to be a model of the people carried off in exile because of their sin but who are repentant and thus return and is re-enthroned as king. Are you with me? Isn't that amazing? Uh, so there is hope ahead. The, the rest of this material from 7 to 35 is going to be talking about the threat that, that impends over, is over Judah from Assyria. And we'll have to do a little bit of geography to settle, set all that for ourselves in time. But as I've said, the next passage, uh, really 7 through 11, 12, 7 through 12, is, um, is sometimes called by uh, Isaiah scholars the book of, the book of uh, Emmanuel. Because we're going to introduce the name Emmanuel, and then we're going to keep reintroducing it a few times through the rest of that section up through chapter 11. 
and then 12 is a celebration of God's salvation. But 7 through 12 is going to be the message that will harden Ahaz and his people and send them off into judgment. I just wanted to ask a real quick question. By giving all these names to us now, is that anything to do with like the generations, the three or four generations? Does that give yeah. us some insight mm-hmm. into yeah. this is why it happened yeah. to them? Yeah. Okay. This is... This is at the end of Isaiah's life. He's going to be succeeded by um, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Hezekiah's good news, uh, to some degree. He's he's kind of a he's kind of an odd character, and don't know quite how to sort him out. But it, but he's generally a, a good king. But followed by Ammon, Manasseh, and Ammon, and then Josiah and his offspring. And and Josiah's a good man. But he had no impact on the spiritual life of the people. Um, Josiah was a good king, but he had no impact on the spiritual life of the people. Um, Generally speaking, in Israel's history, as the king goes, so goes the nation. So if you have a godly king, the the, the people follow the Lord. But if if you have an ungodly king, they abandon the Lord. Um, uh, Hosea will say, "Your, your faithfulness is fickle. (laughs) <laughs> Have you ever heard of fickle faithfulness? <laughs> it's like the it's like the morning mist that disappears with the sun. It has no staying power. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's Hosea two. And, and uh, Hosea, of course, is a, is a, a prophet to the northern kingdom. But, um, yeah, I think so. It's the same thing. God's going to send judgment. But in the judgment, uh, as Hosea uses that marvelous imagery, I'm going to hedge her in. And the only way she'll be able to go is, is to come back to me. And so um, we, we were in Israel, and we'll close with this. We were in Israel some years ago. And um, the, uh, the guide was talking about um, the, the difficulty of life in Israel because <laughs> from the West Bank border to the Israeli Pentagon was less than six miles. <laughs> so if you fire an, a missile at the Pentagon of Israel, uh, you got just minutes before, a minute or two before it goes up. And you say, how do you live with this? And the people, uh, some of the people on the, on the tour said, do you think you'll ever have peace he said, no, we will never have peace. And I thought, no, you will. But you'll get it the wrong way. You'll think you've gotten it, but you'll get it the wrong way. And when that happens, it's going to be tough. But that's going to be the pre- precursor to salvation. That's the amazing thing. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you that you have redeemed us. You have made atonement for us. You have, as it were, not in vision, but in the reality of the work of Christ, touched our lips with coals from the altar. And you have taken away our impurities. You have um, uh, turned away, therefore, your wrath from us. You have rendered yourself capable, justly, rightly, able to express favor to us and it is the favor you show to Jesus you have redeemed us ransomed us from our 
empty way of life we inherited from our ancestors. And not only that, but you have bought us with a price. We're not our own. Um, you have made us your own personal possession and given us a destiny which is beyond our comprehension. And in the meantime, between our redemption and that destiny, you have given us a calling which is beyond compare. We don't understand it well, Father. Uh, move in us that we may understand our calling and be able to live in light of what Paul called a living sacrifice. Um, then, Father, um, we will be a sacrifice of a sweet-smelling aroma to you, giving pleasure to the heart of our God. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Yeah.